I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Origins of the Modern Public. A lot of anxiety has been expressed in recent years about what British writer David Marquand calls the decline of the public. The sense is that a once vital public sphere has become uncivil and incoherent under the onslaughts of privatization, spin, and media fragmentation. One way to approach this kind of problem, the historian's way, is to ask how we got the thing we think we're losing in the first place. And this is just what an interdisciplinary research project called Making Publics has been doing. For the last five years, this group of scholars from universities all over North America has been searching for the roots of our modern idea of the public sphere. They've been looking into the ways in which new media, new markets, and new forms of popular association transformed the very idea of the public in Europe between 1500 and 1700. Making Publics is based at McGill University, and Ideas producer David Cayley has been following its work and reporting on it in this ongoing Ideas series. Today, he looks at how people came together around the new sciences that were taking shape in this early modern period. Here's David Cayley with The Origins of the Modern Public. Science, in our modern sense, is often thought of as something that just popped out of the heads of a handful of big thinkers in the 17th century. Galileo, Boyle, Newton... It's a way of thinking that's epitomized in the famous couplet that Alexander Pope proposed as Newton's epitaph. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. The reality, as recent work in the history of science has been demonstrating, is messier and more interesting. A sentence from Leslie Cormack and Andrew Eads a History of Science in Society, sums up this newer approach. Science, they write, does not exist in disembodied minds, but is part of living, breathing society. Unquote. The great man only centers and personifies the great swirl of desire and accomplishment that surrounds and animates him. The instruments he uses, the kind of knowledge he desires, the assumptions he makes, the publics he addresses, the patrons he must please, all express his situation and his inheritance, and not just his individual genius, remarkable though that might be. Leslie Cormack, whom I just quoted, is one of the historians who has promoted this new view of science. She began her work with a history of geography as it developed at British universities in the late 16th and early 17th century. Today, she's Dean of Arts and Social Sciences at Simon Fraser University and a member of the Making Publics Research Group, whose work I've been featuring in this series. She thinks that what we summarize retrospectively as science had many tributary streams. Her first field of study, geography, is an example. One of the things that is important to me about geography is that it links together theory and practice. And I think that that's crucial to understanding the development of an understanding of nature in this period. That 
uh, historians for a very long time saw science as very much a theoretical pursuit and that the ideas were really everything. And so anything that was seen as practical or applied or had been done by craftsmen in some way had nothing to do with the development of science. And this was, this was part of the development of theories of the scientific revolution that we see occurring after the Second World War. So people like Herbert Butterfield, who really wanted to see science as somehow separate from the kind of sullied world of the practical. I mean, Butterfield talks about a gestalt switch. And so this was the group of people who claimed that Galileo had done no experimentation, that it was all thought experimentation, and started a quite a scathing critique of anyone who felt that craftsmen could have anything to say to scholars. And I wanted to prove that that was not true, that in fact practical ideas were important. And it is clear that in this period, we have a tremendous explosion of practical people interested in nature in a number of different ways. And the, the people that I've been most interested in were mathematicians. And it's partly because surveying and gunnery and fortifications and navigation all needed some kind of mathematical background if they were going to expand as they needed to in a context of imperial posturing and warfare in this period. And so we start to have, first of all, mathematics taught in the vernacular, books of mathematics done in the vernacular, but also schools of practical mathematics. And part of that is in geography, so I would certainly see that. But there are other practical areas like botany, where we start to see groups of people interested in the healing properties of plants and amassing a huge amount of information that actually was very important to the development of classification by the 18th century. So I think that these practical men, mostly and occasionally women, have been underplayed quite dramatically in understanding the transformation of nature study. Well, if you think of geography, instrument makers must also have been tremendously important. Absolutely. And of course, that's the other part of this equation, that it's all very well to say practical men, but you know, people can do things by the seat of their pants. They draw something on the end of a board and they build a boat. That's great. But instrument makers need precision and they need the theory behind the instrument. And so instrument makers actually provide a very important link between those who might think of the big theories of how things work, and then on the other side, the people who are just interested in the practice. So it's perhaps not a surprise that instrument making is also something that just explodes in this early modern period. That's also partly because people have more money and so they can buy instruments and a wider range of people have access to instruments because of uh, resources. But do you see this mixing of mechanics and philosophy as crucial to the foundation of the new science? I do. As actually its original condition? I do. Uh, the, the, the hardest part of that equation is to see the one-to-one -one correspondence. That is that we cannot really say Galileo created pile drivers, therefore he came up with a new theory of the tides. We can't say that Newton watched engines performing and therefore thought of, the, of his theories of force. But they lived in societies where they did see those things. And I do think that it was necessary to have 
a society in which there were the importance of measurement of mathematics, of an understanding of how natural forces worked, that even made those people think, uh, imagine the kind of larger theoretical ideas. Science, in Leslie Cormack's view, was shaped within a complex field of practical arts, like navigation and gunnery, political imperatives, like trade and imperial expansion, and popular enthusiasms, like botany. Recently, as part of the Making Publics project, she's been particularly interested in how the new sciences of the 16th and 17th century brought people together in the new groupings that she and her colleagues call publics. Publics, as she understands them, are voluntary assemblies without formal structure or membership that come together around some idea, practice, or artifact and are changed in the process. As her contribution to the Making Publics Project's first book, called Making Publics in Early Modern Europe, she looked at how publics formed around an artifact that was widely produced and avidly consumed at this time, the globe. We really do have to look at specific areas in order to find publics being created. And that's why I did go to geography now, partly that geography was the area that I had already known and was most interested in. But as I looked, I thought, yes, I can see the creation of publics around particular issues, particular instruments, and particular ways of thinking about the world. So then I say, okay, that sounds good, but let's try that out. And so I tried it out at one point with the question of globes. And so you look at how the earth is depicted in that particular instrumental way and say, okay, well, how can publics, how can we think about that being a public artifact or creation of publics? And of course, at one level, a globe is a great thing to start with because it's big and it must be somewhere public, right? It must be somewhere where people can see it. So we start with an artifact that by its very nature was to be seen in some way. And then we then you say, well, first of all, who was creating it? Second, what did anybody think they were doing with it? And third, what difference ideologically did it make that it was in the long gallery or whatever? The way I thought of it was building out like the layers of an onion. So we start with the people who would have all known each other and would have created such an instrument, the people who gave money for it, the ones who supplied the geographical information for the maps that would be on the globe, the people who actually made the round globe themselves, and then the court that might have uh, had it presented to them, that sort of thing. But then we have a, a, a larger community than that, those who know about globes because they've heard of them, who've read books about globes. And so now we start to have strangers, right? We start to have people who are only united by an interest in and a knowledge of these globes. Second of all, that they can come in and out easily, that, that there's no admission, because you don't necessarily need to own a globe, you just need to know about that globe. And then third is the question of what difference it would make politically. Does this have some kind of political import? And I think it does, because people who have thought about globes and seen globes certainly express themselves as arguing that this changes the way that they think about 
empire and the place of England is my particular area of research, but where the people live, the relationship between that and the rest of the world. And so I think it does have a political statement to make as well. And so I think that that's the way forward to thinking about publics and science is constructing a number of those smaller publics. And then, of course, still begs the question, how do we move from those small communities to the larger one? And I think that that, at some level, is an enlightenment story, is a story about the creation of a group of intellectuals who believe that the rationality of science is something that every educated person should know and that it has implications for our our running and understanding of the political and social world. In London, in 1624, a submarine capable of carrying 16 passengers and cruising at a depth of 12 to 15 feet traveled from Westminster to Greenwich and back, remaining submerged for three hours. The boat was made of leather, stretched on a wooden frame and powered by six sets of oars. The king, James I, and several thousand of his fellow Londoners were taken for test dives but the Lords of the Admiralty were unimpressed by its potential as a ship of war, and the idea was developed no further. The creator of this prodigy was a Dutch inventor by the name of Cornelius Drebbel, now not much remembered, but in his time one of the most celebrated men in Western Europe. It was because of this celebrity and the ways in which he focused the desires and hopes of a larger public that he attracted the interest of historian Vera Keller, a postdoctoral fellow with the Making Publics Project. Drebbel, she says, was the unschooled son of well-to-do Dutch farmers. He married into a more prominent family, wrote a well-received treatise on natural philosophy, and in 1604 moved to England, to the court of James I. He worked on building what became a very famous perpetual motion machine which he presented to Prince Henry. And he went on to build many versions of this machine, which can be understood as a primitive thermometer, although that is not really doing due service to what this machine was. It was so famous that Rudolf II invited him to come to Prague to build one for him there. And he did do so, except Rudolf unfortunately died. And at that point, Drebbel and various other people with whom Rudolf had been very close before his death were imprisoned. Drebbel escaped somehow, went back to England, went on to have a flourishing career, built weapons, microscopes, telescopes, camera obscurae, theatrical displays, the submarine, um, one of the first chemical dyes, many, many, many other projects. One of the, what engineers consider the first uh, feedback control mechanism in their terminology, which is an oven that you can set it to a particular temperature and it stays at that temperature. The ideas behind that oven were the same as the perpetual motion, which points to the fact that just because we call it a perpetual motion doesn't mean that it's some ridiculous folly. Perpetual motion was one of the great desires of the time, and the fact that Drebbel seemed to have delivered it was a major source of his mystique. 
His device used the effect of changing air pressure on a sealed column of water to run a clock. But what interested Vera Keller about Drebbel was not just his remarkable ingenuity, but the ways in which he was taken up by a large international public. I thought that the people surrounding the person that I was talking about, um, and by people I meant an extremely large, anonymous, international population, were just as important as the person, and that the person could not have existed without them. They created a horizon of possibility for this crazy person I was studying to exist. In other words, I didn't have this heroic sense of the individual that he himself had brought himself into existence, but that he pointed to a much, much, much larger societal state of mind and formation which allowed him to exist. He was at the tip of the iceberg. And um, so I wanted to understand that dynamic. It was a dynamic that didn't make sense to me, according to a lot of the uh, historiography already in place. So much of early modern historiography until now has emphasized the individual since the 19th century. These great people, you know, Michelangelo, Galileo, etc., And all these other, you might say, characters either have to reach the level of genius or they fall by the wayside. And um, the person I wrote about, Cornell's Drebbel, was um, one of these characters where he was absolutely incredibly famous, um, unbelievably famous for 200 years. Now not very well known. He's still known slightly, but hardly known at all in academia. And uh, he just became a byword for fame in the 17th century, when you wanted to say that somebody else was famous, you said, as famous as Drebbel. Just the same way that our byword for genius right now is Einstein. So I had to understand how that happened. How was it that such a famous man became so famous, A, and B, is no longer really known? That divide between his celebrity then and his basically disappearance now pointed to something problematic with our view of the whole period. It pointed to the way that we do not focus on necessarily what had been a large phenomenon in the period if it doesn't fit our conceptions of what was important in society, namely, for example, individualism. So Drebbel um, was notoriously secretive, and he did very, very, very little to promote himself. He told uh, his sons-in-law, who married his daughters just so they could get his secrets, that he was going to die and bring a thousand secrets to his grave with him and not give them to him. (laughs) That was the kind of man he was. So he wasn't the kind of person that really put himself out there. He didn't collect his letters. He didn't, you know, make his self-portrait spread all over Europe. He didn't correspond with people. And we have a lot of studies of people who did do all those things. Durr, Erasmus, they're all famous as self-fashioners, of people who really worked on their own image and really worked up a sense of this heroic self. This man was like a vacuum at this vortex of fame. Everybody else talked about him, and they told wild stories. And that was the other historiographical issue with his study, is that because the stories that they told were secondhand and fantastic, even though in fact what he was doing in reality was pretty fantastic. I mean, he did invent a submarine and, you know, ride it underneath the Thames for two miles, etc. Because they were so fantastic, they were dismissed as historiographical evidence. They were puffery, they were gossip, they're rumor, they're not what you admit to the court of history. But it seemed to me that when you looked at how much of this existed and who was writing it? I mean, the people composing this were some of the greatest thinkers of the time period. 
And for them, Drebbel stood as a really, really, really important locus of thought. They used him to think for their own purposes, to think out their own ideas. It seemed to me that that kind of phenomenon, celebrity, if you will, which is just as important to modern day society as individualism, should not be allowed to escape as a historiographical topic just because it was about a more complex interplay between diverse members of society and not about a single person and his works. Cornelius Drebbel, Vera Keller says, was a vacuum at the vortex of fame. How the mariners who rode his submarine got air is still a subject of speculation. And because he was secretive and made no effort to manage his reputation, his name and his fame became a currency in which others could trade. People would use him as a way to think about the world. So, for example, there were lists that people had of the most famous inventors of all time. And he already during his lifetime, at a young age, joined this list. And this list was repeated over and over and over and over again in one work after another. And one of the um, prominent ways in which this list was deployed was in arguments for the idea of man's abilities and abilities to surpass the ancients. So they were much more interested in um, sort of using him for these sort of debates, views of mankind, views of the world, and ways to transform the world than they were specifically in him. He seemed to be a person that fulfilled all of mankind's most deeply held desires. So for example, many people wanted there to be a submarine. He built a submarine. Many people wanted there to be perpetual motion. He appeared to offer perpetual motion. And they would often magnify these desires one on top of the other. So for example, many, many people wanted to find longitude, the quest for longitude. Leibniz suggested, if we use Drebbel's perpetual motion, we can find longitude. <laughs> or one other person suggested that maybe in Drebbel's perpetual motion, he used flexible glass i.e. plastic, which is another thing that people really wanted to have. So he just, like a magnet, attracted to him this idea that he could fulfill what society really, really wanted and what would really transform the way the, the world in you know, irreversible ways. So that is why so many wonderful stories collected around him. Uh, for example, when John Wilkins talks about his submarine, he goes on to say, we could use this submarine in order to create a colonies of people under the sea who would never even touch ground and we could have printing presses in them and they could write books underwater and then send them up onto the terrene peoples. Clearly this has little to do with Drebbel and the actual boat that he built. It doesn't provide us with any technical details about how the boat really worked, which is still a matter of controversy today. That's a sort of sources that historians are looking for is, okay, what was the boat? How did it work? What were its dimensions? There are no drawings of this boat. Drebbel did not see fit to leave any record of this. And yet he spawned these amazing stories from all of these people across Europe. And so his agency in many ways was much bigger and therefore more ethereal and harder to grasp unless you're working with a concept like Publix. Vera Keller argues that Cornelius Drebbel attracted and enacted people's wishes. His inventions made Publix in the sense in which Leslie Cormack spoke earlier of globes making publics. But his publics also made him, in the sense of shaping his image and his activities. His name became a pivot, 
around which people could form and coordinate relationships and a medium in which they could express their desires. And desires, Keller says, were an important part of the science of this period. The term that was used in the period for these wishes were um, desiderata, things that were desired, which we still use all the time now in research. We say, it is a desideratum of quantum mechanics that such and such. We use this terminology. We don't know where it came from. It came from this specific time period in the early 17th century. And at the time, it was an important keystone in the philosophy of different people. And in particular, of course, Francis Bacon, but not Bacon alone, several of his contemporaries too. And in their ways of conceiving of radically transforming the world. Basically, desiderata, desire, points to things, not just that we wish, but that we want. We want them because they are wanting. They don't exist. There are gaps in our knowledge. There are lacks that we want to fill. So it was a time, points to a time period in which the whole world of knowledge had been broken up and shaken up and people were confused and saw lots of dangers and did not see the future clearly. And they wanted to somehow grab hold of what they could and use it in order to get what they wanted together. This is the vision of, you know, collective pansophic pursuit of the advancement of knowledge. And they did so by collecting desires, rather than that one person should pursue his own desires, which was a major moral, ethical, and political issue of the period with the beginning of the theory of interests and private interests that might threaten the polity, rather than that one person should pursue his own desires. Instead, we'll think about what we want as a society, what parts of knowledge we need to know, and we'll go after them. Now, we still use the term desideratum, but we don't have anyone like Bacon sitting back in his chair and surveying the entire body of knowledge and seeing what it is we want there to exist and what not. We just have little desiderata in our little sub-disciplines that we continue picking away at without any sort of grand vision of where we're all headed. And this doesn't bother people too much because we also don't have the sort of angst that many people had in the time period of, uh, of world revolution. You know, we believe in change. We believe in, in innovation, which was sort of a new idea back then, the idea that invention meant finding something new rather than just coming upon something old, in venire, just come upon. So we believe that we change the world and that we will continue to change the world, but we're comfortable in that belief. We think, oh, this will just keep on happening like this. We'll just keep on changing and innovating and pursuing desideratum. But we don't have the sort of impetus to sit back and review everything that humanity has ever done and come to terms with it and decide what we think about it. We rarely do that. Frances Bacon provides Vera Keller with her prime example of this early modern attempt at synopsis at cataloging all that was lacking in knowledge and all that was needful. Bacon was a high state official and the first to fully imagine the institution we now call science. He argued for a systematic reconstruction of knowledge on new empirical foundations. But even though thinkers like Bacon wanted to replace the faulty knowledge of the ancients with a modern style of learning, there was also among his contemporaries a sense of needing to recover the secrets of antiquity. There's another very big genre of objects in the 17th century, and those were the lost things, the depertita. People talked about things that were lost all the time, and uh, the ancients had them, and then they were 
no more, they were destroyed. So, for example, perpetual motion. Archimedes had built a perpetual motion that showed A, it was possible, but B, that we lost it. So if we want to compete with the ancients and advance the world, we need to find that. Or flexible glass. There was an artisan in the time of Tiberius who built flexible glass, but, fle- but Tiberius murdered him and didn't let anyone know the secret. So we need to find flexible glass if we want to compete with the people from the time of Tiberius. And so there is that sense of both wanting it and it being necessary that we have those specific chunks of knowledge to rebuild a a better world. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Rebuilding the world of learning on new foundations was a preoccupation in the scientific circles of the 17th century. This ambition lay behind Cornelius Drebbel's fame as an inventor of submarines, thermostats, and perpetual motion machines and behind the search for the lost techniques of antiquity. The urgency of this quest for new or recovered knowledge arose from the sense that the old order of things had been broken. The world, as poet John Donne said at the time, was all in pieces, all coherence gone. And the effort to reassemble the pieces, in Vera Keller's view, was beset by fundamental doubts and questions. There was, for example, a pressing question about what humanity's original condition had been. One of the key ideas about what we thought we knew about the new wor- about the world that was questioned and that's questioning proved to be pretty fundamental to the future course of civilization was what is the state of nature and therefore what is civil society by contrast is a state of nature the golden age, the idyll that we have descended from, fallen down from, degraded ourselves from, and modern society is just the abyss into which we've fallen and that we should all restore ourselves to this pastoral myth? Or is the state of nature barbarous and savage and man at war and pursuing his own interests, etc., al Hobbes, in which case, for our own lives' preservation, we must join in a civil society? And that's one of those ideas that uh, the discovery of the new world really had an influence upon is um, when you discover a culture that you see, you could either see as confirming your pastoral myths if you think of the inhabitants of the new world as incredibly noble, etc. Or you could, like Hobbes, look at the new world and see you know, a savage state that mankind used to be in in Europe as well and thank God we've escaped from. So implicated in that story is the history of invention, which I'm always interested in, is does invention serve to increase society, civil society? Is invention a key underpinning of the difference between us and new world inhabitants? And by furthering the knowledge of invention, our knowledge of nature, our technology, will we only ever advance our society? Or is invention sort of the apple that Eve ate that threw us out of the garden that made us be the horrible, artificial, manipulative people that we now are. And that's a big question surrounding machinery in the time period 
that um, since we've now basically agreed on the side of machinery being good, we don't really think about much, but was a big question in the period. One might question Vera Keller's statement that we've now agreed that machinery is good. Technological pessimism has been a major strain in the thought of our time. But what I think she means is that the commitment to a technological society has long since been made, the die cast. She's talking about a time when many people embraced invention, but at the same time feared it quite fundamentally. When you look back at people's ideas of progress in the period or ideas of innovation in the period, what you can get out of it is instead of the sense of progress marching forward, which is what the oldest historiography suggests, you could also see a very dark view of the period, one in which was it was very doubtful, and um, a f- sense of the, their period's own contingency, the idea that everything could go wrong. One of my favorite writers, um, Johann Daniel Mayer, wrote in this wonderful utopia, journey to a new world without a ship or a sail. It's a mental journey to a different universe. And he starts off by saying, we've had three new inventions that have completely transformed the world in horrible ways. (laughs) You know, guns have destroyed the bravery of our German soldiers. Printing is only used for pornography. You know, look at the Ottoman Empire, they don't allow print and they're constantly threatening our borders etc. And he says the next invention is that I'm sure going to be discovered will be the art of flying. I'm sure that's going to happen really soon. So there's on the one hand the sense that yes, inventions will happen really soon. We live in a time of inventions. But he said the world will be even worse with the art of flying than it has been with the previous three. We'll have knights riding in the air, shooting at cities from above. We'll have iron nets built over cities to protect them from this aerial combat. The air everywhere will be full of smoke and the sound of guns. So he saw a very, very dark vision of what invention would bring. This is not the sort of text that gets cited in histories of the idea of progress, but it's a rather prominent uh, view and one that could be brought to bear and I think is very relevant for our own time period as we constantly reach new frontiers of science. Daniel Meyer's fears about where invention was leading were widely shared in the 17th century. In fact, Vera Keller sees the whole early modern scientific milieu that she studies as having almost an adolescent character, still gripped by childhood memories of the unity of knowledge, the old integrated worldview in which everything had its place and proportion, not yet fully grown into the high modern confidence in secular progress that would follow, its mood by turns bold and despairing. In this uncertain world, inventors, or artists as the practitioners of technical arts were still sometimes called, were important figures. Cornelius Drebbel is an example. These figures, in Vera Keller's view, were not just pulling together knowledge, they were also pulling together society. You had people gathering around a notion or a practice, an object or a famous person, and exchanging poetry and knowledge and views about that person. And they used that person for their own purposes of sociability. The term in the period was a lover, which we still have now as an amateur. These are people who were not the practitioner themselves. They weren't, for example, the artist. 
but they identified themselves because they gathered around something. And so they created a associative network, which was very, very open. You don't have to be a member of a particular family. You don't have to be noble to be a lover. You just use it as a way to identify yourself with other people via something else. So via a celebrity, for example, you could all be lovers of Drabble or fans, as we would say today. Liefhebber in Dutch, lover in Dutch is still the word that they use for fan. So you could all be a fan of something and you use that for your own purposes of sociability, your own way of building a public. And as today with fan culture, a lot of the work of spreading that fan's image is not done by, sorry, spreading the celebrity's image is not done by the celebrity. It's done by the fans and they have meetings and associations um, and they do invest a lot of work in spreading the celebrity's image. And so I was looking in half of my dissertation at these groupings of fans who would collect Drebbel um, and other things as part of a way to reorganize the world. Vera Keller sees the admirers of Cornelius Drebbel as constituting something like a modern fan club. They imagine themselves as part of an international community called the Republic of Letters, a term which first began to appear in the later 15th century and continued to gain currency right through the 18th century. What that term is supposed to mean is an idyllic land of learning with no, in fact, territorial boundaries, no confessional divides that mattered, where politeness reigned and the association for the advancement of learning continued unabated. In reality, it was, of course, strewn with petty rivalries, jealousies, confessional wars, and territorial interests that were competing with each other all the time, often in the name of their public of letters. So many people who operate in public of letters as though they were liberal humanists doing this out of the love of learning, they often talk about being lovers and doing this for the love of learning, being a lover of poetry, a lover of mathematics, or whatever, were often also agents, political agents, who were in fact, gathering information and doing this internationally in a competitive way. This is a great period of the rise of the agent. So for example, Rubens would be a prime example, someone who seems to be just an artist, but in fact is using his art as a way to carry on political negotiations internationally. And uh, in order to be an agent in this kind of deceptive world of international politics, you had to be the kind of person who could travel easily and get to know a lot of influential people, which meant you had to be a member of the Republic of Letters. So by becoming a member of the Republic of Letters, one could also become an agent and rise in a political career. Peter Paul Rubens was a successful and prolific early 17th century Flemish painter with a thriving workshop in Antwerp, who also served as a diplomatic conduit between various European courts. Vera Keller cites him as an example of what is sometimes called late humanism. The term humanism in the early 16th century had been associated with what could be seen, at least in retrospect, as a coherent international fellowship of artists and scholars interested in the revival of classical learning. By the later 16th and early 17th centuries, things were widely felt to be different. What is marked by what people call late humanism 
is the, a massive expansion in the amount of travel and um, association that members of the public of letters were undertaking. So they would often bemoan the lost days of early humanism when you would have small groups, small solidarities, tight friendships, living these intellectual lives together. And now you have all these grubbers and networkers traveling across Europe trying to gain the ear of princes while editing works in which they praise themselves. It seemed that something had changed in the history of humanism, and I think that something had changed. They had taken a model of humanist friendship, which is talked about ad nauseum in every letter to everyone, you have to profess your undying love. So clearly they had taken a language which maybe once was more sincere, and it has become instead a sort of calling card within their public letters as a way to network with other people. The actual emotional investment of love, of friendship in the term lover and friend was waning. And I actually see that as a step on a continuum to a sense that we have now of a public, which isn't very, it's not an effective relationship. There was no other way to talk about people relating to each other other than through friendship and love, even though the relationships that were in fact being cultivated were much more utilitarian often and were much thinner than say a close tight-knit friendship that the language that they're using would suggest that they were keeping. Vera Keller finds the contradiction she is talking about well embodied in a pair of works by Justice Lipsius, a Flemish humanist who published between 1580 and 1610. Lipsius was a leading advocate of the revival of ancient Stoic philosophy and its harmonization with Christianity. Justice Lipsius, the, I think, undeniable star of the Republic of Letters through the 17th century, writes two books. One is on constancy, one is politics. Politics is for princes, on constancy is for subjects. In On Constancy, he says, he, he paints the picture of Lipsius and his friend Langius in a garden, remote from all the horrible troubles and wars that are tearing apart their homeland, the Netherlands. And it gives a, a model of this neo-Stoic friendship in which we don't have to pay attention to everything that's going out there in the world, all the terrible politics, all the violence, as long as we have this intense intellectual friendship that we share together and, and build. And so that has influenced a certain view of the humanist friendship in the period um, and what it meant to be a member of the Republic of Letters. Then in the politics, for princes, he says... Nothing but the empty name of friendship remains. <laughs> and he talks all about uh, dissembling friends, and he has um, whole chapters about ways that one is allowed to dissimulate emotion for the good of the state and the ways to use people, etc. So while on the one hand presenting to subjects an idea that, uh, oh, we should all be engaged in wonderful friendships, on the other hand, he's telling princes, these are the ways that people can be used. And these are the ways that one can feign emotion. And these are the ways that um, quote-unquote friendships can serve the state. Now, you put those two worlds, which seem separate, together in the public of letters because you have a society of people who are all, on the one hand, private citizens, but on the other hand, serving the state, often. And so they profess to be involved in some sort of wonderful relationship with some other humanist, when in reality, they are an agent for a prince, for example, and are trying to make a diplomatic negotiation and are using the language of deeply felt intellectual companionship for state purposes. 
So this new politics is weakening and draining the sense of friendship, which at the same time is being talked about more and more and more. When you have a book of a thousand friends, who's really your friend? Then you're just a networker. The Republic of Letters, in Vera Keller's eyes, had a divided soul. It was animated, on the one hand, by humanist and neo-Stoic ideals of benevolence and friendship, and on the other, by what was coming to be called the reason of state. The same contradiction, in her opinion, runs through the new sciences of the time. Galileo, in popular memory, is the disinterested truth-seeker persecuted by obscurantist religious authorities. But he was also, as Leslie Cormack and Andrew Ede write of him in their History of Science in Society, every inch an early modern courtier, a kind of intellectual knight with power to gain and lose, constantly looking for innovation to aid and glorify his patrons. Sir Francis Bacon, often called the father of modern science, foresaw a harmonious marriage of science and state in his utopian New Atlantis of 1626. And this overlapping of state and scientific interests, Keller says, was evident in the very word that was used for the information collectors of the time. Intelligencer is used frequently in the history of science to discuss various people such as Samuel Hartlib and people um, underlying the founding of associations like the Royal Society who would act as nodes in the Republic of Letters to gather particulars of information from all over in order to build up the new learning. However, in history of science, it is not usually brought together, and this is something I'm trying to do, with the political history of intelligence at the time period, because um, an intelligencer was also just a spy, and Samuel Hartlett was also serving the state. So it's important not just to look at the pansophic utopian side of the coin of learning, but to also look at the other side in which uh, states' interests are often promoting the association and advancement of learning for its own ends. If they get all these people out there networking in the public of letters, it's easier for them to gather information at a time when information is becoming crucial to the state. Vera Keller sees the modern age as ambivalent, and she sees this ambivalence writ large in its early history. Justice Lipsius imagined the consolations of faithful friendship, but also allowed false friendship in the service of the state. Samuel Hartlib spoke in his writings of the education of all mankind, but often had to accommodate more narrowly national and sectional interests. Keller's point, I think, is not that these men were hypocrites, but that the age itself was undecided about the acceptability of private and particular interests. German philosopher Jürgen Habermas, writing about the 18th century in his book The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere, imagines the public sphere as a polite debate between competing points of view, where reason, in effect, is the harmonization of competing interests. But interest in the 17th century was still struggling to declare itself. 
The idea of civil society had been formulated, but its nature was still vigorously contested. It all comes down to what your basic view of the idea of private interest is. Do you think that the pursuit of interest is rational and therefore part and parcel of civil society? Or do you think the pursuit of interest is the pursuit of desire and therefore the very opposite of civil society? This is another big question of the 17th century is interest, the question of interest. We now assume, often at least in the West, that pursuit of private interest is rational. We call it rational actor theory. But this was by no means the assumption in the 17th century. For many people, private interest was the work of Satan, <laughs> literally. And it was used to explain the apocalypse. John Dury called interest the beast upon which the false church writeth. So for Habermas, this whole to and fro of interest, this genteel debate, was peace on earth. And it was the heights to which we should all aspire. To many 17th century thinkers, communion in Christ was peace on earth, and debate over interest was Antichrist. So their talk about what is rational behavior and how it relates to the pursuit of private interest was um, miles away from the way we often assume it to be and often write about it being in the history of politics um, today. So I'm more interested in how people defended the idea of desire rather than the idea of civility in the period. Because if you assume that interest is, in fact, not different from desire, then it's interesting when people come up with theories that desire is good, that desire brings together the polity. And if it's desire that brings together the polity, then what we're not looking for is civility so much. We're looking for um, a sort of folly. We're looking for enthusiasm. We're looking for people throwing cash at consumer goods because that's what advances the economy. So it's uh, the differences between looking at publics as a sort of market and looking at it as a civil society over a cup of tea has a lot to do with your views on how rational is rational actor theory. The question Vera Keller raises here touches the very nature of modern society. Is it a rational enterprise in which many goods finally merge, or just a great machine for the production and satisfaction of desire? It's a question with many variations. Is science the education of all mankind, in Samuel Hartlib's phrase, or the foundation of a state which will eventually have every citizen's genome on file? And the question of publics, Keller says, can be construed in the same way. People are set free to pursue their interests and desires, but at the same time they are exposed to new forms of surveillance and control. I have both an optimistic and a pessimistic view of publics which coexist. On the one hand, publics are this amazing democratic form which allows people to associate and to advance um, objects of learning that are important to them and engage in all sorts of human activity which previously they would have had no access to. On the other hand, publics might also be fomented in various ways by status interests because they help them in order to learn about their publics in order to use them. So a famous example is uh, Theophraste Renaudot in 1630 in Paris founded the, the Office of Address, um, which he said would be a public space like a telescope 
to bring together people that are far distance and services to bring them together. He thought that modern society had become too complex and too big for people just to figure out their daily lives without extra help. You needed some way to gather information and allow people to find each other, like the Yellow Pages. So he made this bureau. He started publishing the first, uh, it's the first still extant French newspaper. Um, he made all sorts of various previously hard to find information available for people. Anyone could also come to the soirees that he had where you debated questions of knowledge and hundreds of people would show up. Anyone was allowed in. It seems to me an incredibly democratic form. However, um, it increasingly became a tool of the state. People were required to register. They made it a, a way to find vagabonds and send them to work in galleys, etc. It became a way to collect information about the people, to survey them, which has become and still is so important to the information state. Vera Keller, a postdoctoral fellow with Making Publics when I interviewed her and about to become an assistant professor at the University of Oregon. My exploration of the origins of the modern public will continue next time with a look at literary publics. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio. <laughs>